God didn't look at you and say, well, you know, you, he is a pretty good guy. I think he's savable. No, God says we are desperately wicked. There's none who seeks God. In God's economy, we are helpless. We are powerless. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of Romans chapter 5, we have seen beginning in verse 3 that the trials and tribulations that believers go through in their lives are an example of the love of God. We see this experientially through the character God develops in us. And as we pick up today, Pastor Brogy notes that we also see this love through the hope God pours into us through the Holy Spirit. What an incredible statement. Paul says we rejoice in our tribulations. He doesn't say we rejoice in spite of our tribulations, but we rejoice in or for our tribulations. How so? Knowing, he says, that tribulation brings about perseverance. And we underscore the importance of this word knowing. There's something you must know. It's the same thing that James says in reference to trial. You want your trial to be an experience that you can consider joy, then there's something you have to know about trials, that God uses them for a purpose. Same is true with tribulation. For the child of God, nothing is wasted. God uses it all to make us more like Christ. And so he says, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance is a word that describes endurance. It, it's really a, it's a picture of steel being put in your spiritual spine. Standing up and living and enduring for Christ, no matter how bad it is, no matter what. And tribulation strengthens that. Tribulation brings about perseverance. And what does perseverance bring about? Proven character. And we saw that this word for proven was used of a goldsmith who would take the metal and get it so hot that he would just skim the slag off the top. And what was left was pure, undefiled gold. And he's saying that's what God does with tribulation, as he does with trials. He uses it for good to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. You say, how does it give you hope? Because you see God at work in your life, that God's committed to you, that God's moving on your life, that he's shaping you and making you more like his son. And that builds hope in the heart. Now, it is true that sometimes Christians don't respond properly to tribulation. When someone persecutes them down at the office and gives them a hard time or mocks them or ostracizes them, sometimes they, it results in frustration or failure or bitterness or resentment. But if we respond properly, God uses it. Now, I hope you saw there's a circle here. In verse 2, it starts with hope. In verse 4, it ends with hope. In verse 2, he says, we exalt in hope of the glory of God. That is, we, we rejoice in the promise that God is going to make us more like himself. And so when tribulation comes along, it brings about perseverance. It brings about proven character. And that gives us hope of the coming glory of God. That God who began this process is going to complete it. That he's committed to us. And so verse 5 begins, and hope does not disappoint. How do you know? How do you know hope doesn't disappoint? 
How do we know this isn't just wishful, positive thinking? Two reasons. Number one, Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. This is the Word of God. But number two, Paul says, because experience tells you. And hope does not disappoint. And why not? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Now, if you've never been born again, if you've never had a birth from above... Verse 5 will never make any sense to you. Now, some folks have had an encounter with the Spirit of God. They've sensed His joy. They've sensed His blessing. They've sensed His conviction because He comes to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And sometimes they confuse that with conversion. He is speaking here of men and women and boys and girls who have been saved, born again. And if you want to go to heaven, it's, you have to be born twice, Jesus said, to enter the kingdom of God. He's talking about God, the Holy Spirit, coming to live inside of you, where you've become a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the promised helper, has been poured out into your hearts. Now, this is the very first mention of God, the Holy Spirit, in the letter to the Romans. And he's going to mention him time and time and time and time again, like he does in no other of his other epistles. But there's an assumption here, which he will affirm and underline in Romans 8, that if you've been saved, you've been regenerated. You've become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, again, if you've never had this second birth, then you really don't know what Paul's talking about. But I hope before you leave today, you'll have the second birth. You can as we will see before we are finished. So hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. Now, that's the inner proof, but he's not done. He's going to say, listen, not only can you rejoice in suffering and tribulation when it comes upon your life because you know God loves you experientially, subjectively, through the Holy Spirit, his love that has been poured out and overflowed in your heart, He's also going to remind us historically, objectively, that you can rejoice in your tribulation because of something that God did in the past through the cross. And so what we're looking at today is the securing love of God, that God's love doesn't change. That when he said to the nation of Israel, I will love you with an everlasting love, he meant just that. That he's not done with the nation of Israel. That's the theme of 9 through 11. And he's going to begin to affirm it, not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile, that God's love is unchanging, even in the midst of tribulation. And so to help us to underscore the securing nature of God's love, he's going to define it in three aspects. If you're taking notes, first, the properties of God's love. The properties of God's love. Now, he reminds us how different God's love is from our love. And in order to emphasize the properties of God's love, he shows how unlovable we are. Point A here in your outline, God loved us when we were helpless. God loved us when we were helpless. Notice how verse 6 begins. For while we were still helpless. Now, you see that little word for in English? We call it a connective conjunction. It connects the previous verse with this verse. And there's a number of little Greek words that are translated for in our English Bibles. Um, most literal translations, they want to do a word-for-word -word correspondence. And so they take the original language and then the receptor language, in this case English, 
they take the one little word Greek and they translate it for. But not all fours in the Greek New Testament mean the same thing. Sometimes they mean because, but that's not the for that he uses here. In fact, some translations will translate the word for because. But to be consistent, the New American Standard always translates it for. And then context helps you to understand what kind of for he's saying. This is what we call an explanatory for. He's saying, in other words, let me explain further. Let me, let me have your ears. Let me to help you to understand how great this love is that God has for you. For while we're still helpless, now the word could be translated in a number of different ways, but it refers to someone who's powerless in the physical realm, it's used in the New Testament, of disease and of sickness. So in Acts 28.9, it says the people on the island who had diseases, same word, were coming to him and getting cured. In the economic realm, it's used of someone who's in poverty, someone who's impoverished. And so Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, in everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak, the helpless, same word, the impoverished. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. But in the spiritual realm, it's used in the New Testament of our bankruptcy. Remember in Acts 3, Peter and John go into the temple and they find a man there who's begging. He's lame, the Bible says. He's paralyzed since birth. And so his friends undoubtedly carried him there every day. And what a choice place to beg. It's a high traffic area. And you're in an area where people might be more congenial and more receptive to give because these are people who feared God. And so Peter and John walk by and he, he reaches out and begs for money. And if you remember, Peter said, silver and gold I have not, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Get up and walk. And the Bible says <clears throat> he seized them by the right hand, he raised them up, and immediately... His feet and his ankles were strengthened. And then the Bible says, with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. Unlike these bozos on TV and they get you out of the wheelchair and the guy starts walking and then slowly his, his legs get strong. No, immediately. And if you don't get up and most of it's rigged, the problem is not the faith healer, it's your faith. Please understand, it had nothing to do with this man's faith. The reality is he's an unbeliever. And so he stood up and he began to leap and to walk and he entered the temple walking and leaping and praising God, the text says, the first Pentecostal recorded in all the Bible. It's a real miracle done by one of the apostles. This man was Athanasius. He was helpless. He was bankrupt. And God uses that in Acts 3 as an illustration to show what we are like spiritually. We are bankrupt. We are helpless. When God looks at the people of this world, when God looked at you to save you, He didn't say, well, you know, you're a man or a woman of faith. You got a little faith. You're savable. The fact is you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead men have no faith. 
you ever got any faith, it was because God took the initiative with you. And faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. God didn't look at you and say, well, you know, he's a pretty good guy. I think he's savable. No, God says we are desperately wicked. There's none who seeks God. In God's economy, we are helpless. We are powerless. We are slaves to the evil one. And God has to come and release us. And so some translations say, like the King James, we were without strength. A beautiful picture. So God loved us, number one, while we were helpless. Number two, the Bible says that God loved us while we were ungodly. Look further in verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, and let me stop right there, at the right time, Jesus came at just the right time. His incarnation, his leaving heaven and coming to earth was predicted by the prophets. In Psalm 22, King David, who served in that capacity not only as a king, but in some instances as a prophet because he's said to be as such in the New Testament. He predicted a thousand years beforehand the incarnation and the crucifixion of Christ. 700 years earlier, Isaiah foretold of it. The Messiah would die by crucifixion. Daniel the prophet, six centuries earlier, spoke of the very fact that in a certain year, Messiah would come and present himself to Israel as her Messiah. And of course, the wise men were wise because they knew the scriptures. They knew the time that the prophet Daniel had spoken of and the 70 weeks prophecy had come. And they knew that the book of Numbers had spoken of a star that would be associated with the coming of Messiah. And so they were looking for that star. Galatians puts it in these words. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. In the fullness of time, at just the right time, at just the right year, when sin was big, because the first coming of Christ is associated where sin is wide and broad and it's a dark time in human history, as will be the second coming of Christ. There are times in human history when it's darker than other times. And Jesus said that his return from heaven will be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot, days of moral permissiveness and days of moral perversion. And if your eyes are open wide, those are the days that we live in. At just the right time when sin was big, when Rome was in control and they had built a a system where from Rome all the roads came, a system by which the, the gospel could spread throughout the whole empire at just the right time when crucifixion was the means of capital punishment, at just the right time when Latin and Greek was the lingua franca of the empire, and you had a language in which you could spread the gospel at just the right time, in the fullness of time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, we have spoken already about this word ungodly, but let me stir you up by way of reminder. We've already seen it in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We saw it in Romans 4, verse 5. If you remember, Paul says, to the one who works... His wage, his paycheck, is not reckoned to him as a favor, 
But what's due, it's an obligation. But to the one who does not work, for that's the only kind of person God will save, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, same word, that person God reckons as righteous. And so Romans 4, 5 blows the self-righteous man out of his religious water. Because he learns that in God's economy of things, he is unrighteous. And there is no hope for him until he is willing to admit that he is unrighteous. In one of the most neglected parables of the New Testament, the parable of the two sons, Jesus said this. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he regretted it and went. Then the man came to the second and said, to the, and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. And if you've studied the parable in Matthew 21, you know that the two sons represent two classes of people. The self-righteous Jew, the religious man of the day, the person who thought he was good enough to enter the kingdom of God by the things that he did. And then those Jewish people, and for the most part, those Gentile people who knew that they were unrighteous, the tax collectors, the publicans, and the prostitutes. And of course, the second son represents those who are lost, and the first son, those who will be saved. And if you remember, John the Baptist came preaching to the religious crowd. And the religious Jews said, I will, sir. But the more they thought about John's message, they said, we're not doing that. And if you remember when John came to the Gentiles and the rebellious and the hardcore pagan, they said, I won't. But the more they heard John's message, they said, I will. So Jesus applies the parable and he asks the question, which of the two did the will of the Father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. He's saying the publicans, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, they are a more viable candidate for the kingdom of God than you religious people. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you seeing this did not even feel remorse so as to believe him. And so when the Bible says that Christ died for the helpless, when the Bible says that Christ died for the ungodly, please do not conclude the doctrine of a limited redemption. We're going to discuss that further in the weeks to come. There are people who do not believe that Jesus died for everyone. They're hyper-Calvinists. They do not believe that you can look at anyone in the eye and say, God loves you, Christ died for you. I reject that with every ounce of my body. Christ died for all men. But the focus here, when it says Christ died for the helpless or for the ungodly, it speaks to the fact that sinful people are welcome to him. And by the way, when we come to the latter half of Romans 5, he will blow out of the out of your mind this false doctrine of a limited redemption that the death and the atonement of Christ was not particular it was for all men his analogy between Christ and Adam will make no sense for you to come to another conclusion 
And so if you can show me any time, any place, anywhere where some ungodly, helpless sinner came to the Lord and God said, no, I will shut this book and stop preaching. But he did not. And so he's describing the properties of God's love, that Christ died for the helpless, he died for the ungodly. Secondly, I want you to think about the proof of God's love. The proof of God's love. The essence of all loving is giving. We know that in the most quoted verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave. Likewise, the apostle Paul said, the son of God loved me and gave himself for me. In addition, you need to remember that the degree of love is always measured by two factors. Number one, the costliness of the gift. And number two, the unworthiness of the recipient. The more costly the gift, and the more unworthy the recipient, the greater expression of love. This gift, as we will see, cost God everything. And it was given to people who deserved absolutely nothing but his wrath. So note first, Christ died for people who were unworthy. For people who were unworthy. Follow what he says here in verse 7. It's a powerful argument. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, Someone would dare even to die. He's making a contrast between two kinds of people that one might sacrifice themselves for. One might, one might uh, hardly die for a righteous man. And the word righteous is the word dikaios, and he's describing someone whose moral righteousness is cold, it's clinical, it's calculated. He does it just because he's supposed to do it. For a person like that, it's unlikely that you would give yourself. Though perhaps for the good man, the agathos man, someone whose morality is warm and kind and loving, someone like your mother or brother or best friend, perhaps for that kind of person you would die. But notice the very first word in verse 8, but, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we've already learned in chapter 3 that the cross is a demonstration of God's justice, of his righteous character. He spoke of how God could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. And he calls that a demonstration of God's righteousness. But here in Romans 5.8, he reminds us that the cross is not just a demonstration of God's just character where he can legally, judicially say you are forgiven because it has been paid for. It is also a demonstration of his great love for us. Now follow the argument. Here in chapter 5, he affirms and assures us God loves us. And three times over, he mentions that Christ died for us. First, in verse 6, we've already read it, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He will say a few verses later um, that while we're enemies, Christ died for us. But here in verse 8, he says, while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what is he doing? He's reminding us how different the love of God is from our love. See, our love tends to be self-seeking. Most of the time, it's built on some desire to enrich ourselves by or to make us feel better about ourselves or, or it's built on a desire to get something from someone. 
It's driven by something that you see maybe that's admirable in the person. But God's love is so different. God isn't after anything. And there's nothing that's admirable in us. By the way, have you ever thought about how Romans 5.8 is a demonstration of the Father's love? I remember Phil Donahue years ago on national TV mocking Christians saying, Oh yeah, for God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. How is that an expression of love? If God really loved us, why wouldn't He have died? Now think about this. Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, Christian Science. Liberal Protestants deny the deity of our Lord and Savior. And so in what sense is the cross a demonstration of God's love? The only way it can be a demonstration of the Father's love in that is if the Father and the Son are inseparable as the Bible teaches. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God who's revealed himself in three co-equal persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible teaches that the love of God is a demonstration. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a show. God commends his love. He proves his love towards us. And that when God gave of, him, of his Son, he gave of himself. Because the Father and the Son are so inseparable, as Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When God gave His Son, He gave Himself. And so again, three times it is underscoring that Christ died for us and it is a demonstration of the Father's love. Now secondly, I want you to see that He died not only for people who are unworthy, who are sinners, but he died for people who are in need. Look at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we've already explored this word sinners in Romans 3.23. We saw that there are three usages of it in the New Testament. Here it's used as an adjective. And it's describing the person doing the wrong. In verse 8, we're called sinners. It's used as a noun where it speaks of the byproduct of what we've done, what we call sin. It's used as a verb, past, present, future tense, that speaks of the action of what we've done, namely sinning. But the point is, whether you're referring to the finished product, the person, or the action, the word in every context means the same thing, that you've missed the mark of God's holiness. Now remember, the Greek of the New Testament was not an upper-level Greek, it was Koine Greek, common Greek. That's what God chose to put his word in. And when the Bible says that we have sinned, it was a very picturesque word in the New Testament. It was used of someone who had missed the path that they were supposed to walk on. It was used of someone aiming at a target who had missed the mark. It has those usages outside of the Bible. And God takes this very picturesque word to describe us next to the glory of God as seen in Christ, as having missed the bullseye, as having missed the mark. The Apostle Paul has noted the properties of God's love and the proof of his love. And when we conclude this message tomorrow, we'll see the provision of God's love through his son, Jesus Christ. To listen again to this message or to download it, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org and look up program ROM23 entitled Secure in God's Love. 
You can also get a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. And when you call, why not make a one-time or ongoing financial gift to help support this teaching ministry, which is heard on radio and through the Internet. Our phone number again is 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow at the conclusion of our look at being secure in God's love. Join us then as we search the scriptures.